This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Although it's been more than two months since Hurricane Ian made landfall as a strong Category 4 storm along the southwest Florida coast near Sanibel Island, many residents of this region are still very much in recovery mode. According to an analysis in late November by NBC News based on public records obtained from local and state authorities, there were 148 deaths related to Hurricane Ian in Florida, including 119 from flooding, winds, and other dangerous conditions during the storm, 61 of those deaths occurred in Lee County. While the bridges to Sanibel and Captiva Islands have been repaired well enough to allow vehicle traffic, the barrier islands, especially Estero Island and the town of Fort Myers Beach, remain devastated and the island's residents and business owners still have a long road ahead of them before any semblance of normalcy will return. Today we're going to go back in time to Thursday, September 29th, that's the day after Ian's landfall to listen to some of the voices we heard on this show. We did the show live at 2 p.m. and then again at 7 p.m. Power and internet was still out for many, if not most, people in our listening area, and cell service was spotty at best at that point. So we brought on members of our team to hear what they had seen and experienced to try to provide as much firsthand information as possible about what the region and its residents were going through. We'll start with the beginning of the 2 o'clock show. This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Southwest Floridians are beginning to assess the damage caused by Hurricane Ian after it cut a path through the region yesterday afternoon. Ian flooded homes across the area and destroyed a portion of the Sanibel Causeway, leaving the island with no access besides by boat. At its peak, Ian knocked out electricity to 2.67 million Florida homes and businesses, and many are still without power. And there are curfews in place in Lee and Charlotte counties where emergency officials are urging people not to go out and tour the damage. On today's show, we're going to talk with some of our reporters and producers to try to get a sense of what we're facing as details are just beginning to emerge. First up, I'm joined in studio by Eileen Kelly. She's our new investigative reporter. She was in Venice, I believe, or Inglewood. Just north of Venice in Sarasota. Just north of Venice Mm -hmm. in Sarasota. Eileen, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you. Um, So uh, tell us where you were during the storm and, you know, sort of give us a short version of what that experience was like, and then we'll talk about what you've seen today. Um, Well, I left here and went up to Sarasota because we thought that the storm was actually going to hit Sarasota. And many years ago, decades ago, I actually was a reporter up there. And um, so I headed up there and along the way I was stopping and interviewing folks as they were getting ready. And then throughout the day yesterday, I was talking to those people to see how they were doing. I ended up riding the storm out in a apartment building on the third floor, which I felt good about the third floor. But not so great about the apartment building because as journalists, we just never have time to actually do the preparations that we're writing about what other people do. So it was a little a little scary. The building's fire alarm kept going off and when the winds were oh, at least 100 miles an hour. And it was really terrifying because I was like, wait, wait where are we going to go? Is, is the building on fire? And I, I guess they were just malfunctioning because it kept happening. But um and I literally just pulled back into Fort Myers. It was very difficult trying to get back. How did you come down? Like what I, attempt, did you I attempted to go down uh, US 41, and I was stopping at places and interviewing people. But the roads were just, it was they were washed out um, as I got closer to Punta Gorda. And so then I was trying to go west to get on 75. But as it turned out, I had to go really far north 
to go west to go south because the inland roads were also flooded out. Um, you know, it's just amazing. All of the cars that I saw just on sides of roads, on the highway, and I just— Cars that had been obviously <laughs> flooded out and where it had stalled? Exactly, exactly, and just like one after the other, and I kept thinking, my God, when were they driving? Or were they, was it last minute trying to trying to escape and get over to Miami, or which you would be heading into the storm? It was, you know, as I was heading south, I just was seeing all these southbound cars. I'm like, well, I don't know where they were could even thought to be going. Um, I haven't been outside the building. As you've gotten closer to campus here, what is this area around like in terms of the roads and passability? Um, not bad. Not bad at all. Um, in more proper Fort Myers, like the colonial area, you know, the power lines are down or traffic signals are down. There's a, there are a lot of, there's a big police presence trying to direct traffic. But as they came closer to the university, um, it's not too bad. I kind of expected this place to be underwater. You know, I've lived in Fort Myers all my life, and we've never really had storm surge flooding. You know, it, usually they talk about it, and mm -hmm. then it doesn't pan out. And this time, it seems like it panned out like three times worse than Wilma is what I've heard. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, some people that I had talked to, you know, as I was heading north and interviewing people, you know, the people were saying, you know, some people remember Charlie, but think about all the people that are new to Florida. This yeah. is brand new for them. And I, I met plenty of people. I actually, I met a couple, and they were running through the parking lot just giddy, and this was up in Punta Gorda, and, and so I, you know, pull out my quarter, and I go over to them and introduce myself, and I was like, so it looks like you're going to board up, are you going to evacuate? And they were like, evacuate? No way. They're like, we're from New York. This is our first hurricane, and they were just, like, thrilled, huh. and... um they were actually on their honeymoon, which they were calling a honey monsoon. And um, but I, I kept in touch with them over and over and over. They were twenty-one-year-old kids. How they fare? Do you know? They did okay, but as like I talked to them Tuesday in the day, then Tuesday evening, and then Wednesday a couple times, like before the storm, and as it was still. I mean, the storm was just sitting right over that area, and mm. you know they were like, "When's this going to end?" And I was like. It's a monster, yeah. and it's so slow. So they, they weren't so giddy anymore. They boarded up the house. You know, they they just really didn't know what to do. Um, yeah. Um, you've said you've covered storms over the years. Um, do you have anything else in the terms of what you've seen before that anyway echoes what you're seeing now so far? Um, very much. Um, Katrina was a water storm. You know, I remember driving over overpasses and seeing the, the very tops of buses showing that the water had uh, gone up that high. Um, I went on some search and rescue missions with um, different law enforcement agencies as they were marking the places, trying to find people to see if they were in their attics. I'm, I'm trying to embed with the National Guard. Um, I've already put out the feeler for them. And so if you're listening, please bring me along. You know, I really want to tell these stories um, of what you're doing to help people. And I'm also going to check with law enforcement as well because I'm sure that on Sanibel and, and Fort Myers that there are a lot of people that are stuck there. And I spent 10 years living on Sanibel, and this is why it's particularly hard. Um, so.
Um, I talked to, we're going to go to uh, WGCU Sandra Victorova here in just a second, but I talked to former FEMA director and Florida Division of Florida Emergency Management Director Craig Fugate yesterday, and, you know, we talked about some people were comparing this to Charlie because of the path that it took, but Charlie, he said, was like a big tornado compared to, to Ian, and that uh, Charlie would fit in the eye wall of Ian. So that kind of puts it into context for those people who even were here for Charlie. We're going to be joined now by Sandra Victorova. She is uh, uh, our morning edition host and reporter. She's been stationed at the Charlotte County Emergency Operations Center since yesterday morning or maybe even the day before. I've lost track of days. Uh, Sandra, welcome to the show. Me too. How are you, Sandra? <laughs> I'm good, Mike. I, um, I actually recently left the Emergency Operations Center, and I'm actually at a Creekside a mobile home park, and um, to be honest, I'm looking at a bunch of RVs that are flipped over like toys, and it's pretty heartbreaking for the residents here. Um, obviously, these are their homes. About 25 residents stayed here, which when they told me, I didn't believe them, but they actually had a clubhouse where they were told was going to be safe, and it turned out it was very safe. The, the clubhouse is, is nice and protected, but today they are essentially going through these mobile homes and trying to figure out what they can salvage. Um, when these things tip over, it's a total loss. So I had the opportunity to talk to a, a couple from Indiana. So, uh, they could have left. They decided not to leave. The end. They just felt like they couldn't leave their friends, their neighbors behind. Uh, they decided, you know, they wanted to do what they could to help their neighbors. And so they were here and they watched, you know, their home flip over and, um, Today, they are literally, it's flipped over on its side, um, but they are inside of it trying to pull out anything they can um, and, and have been lucky enough to have a very kind neighbor who has offered uh, her RV so they can uh, at least have a place to stay tonight. That was WGCU Sandra Victorova talking with me during the 2 o'clock airing of this show just about 24 hours after Hurricane Ian made landfall. Today we're listening back to some of the voices we were able to bring to you as the devastation left behind by Ian was still being assessed. Millions of people across the state were still without power at that time, and so we were trying to provide as much firsthand information as we could about what so many people were facing, especially for those who still had no access access to information from the outside world except by radio. We did another live show that Thursday evening at 7 after some of our reporters had spent the day out in the field. We began that show with a conversation with Megan Borowski. She's one of the meteorologists with the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network who was with us and you for more than 10 hours throughout Ian's approach and landfall. Megan Borowski is a meteorologist with the Florida Public Radio Emergency Network. Megan, thank you so much for spending some time with me this afternoon. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you characterize what this storm just did uh, to us here in southwest Florida from a meteorologist's perspective? Uh, catastrophic damage. Uh, you know, we, we see hurricanes frequently during storm season, uh, but this one is going to go down in the record books. I know Governor DeSantis mentioned that in, in one of his press conferences earlier today. And, and yeah, just in, in how it hit uh, the Lee Island coast so hard, it came on shore as a high-end category four hurricane with uh, maximum sustained winds of 155 miles an hour. And, you know, in the postseason, 
National Hurricane Center meteorologists do go in and they do reassess the storm. And there is the potential that they could reanalyze re, um, it and say, you know, no, this was a, a Cat 5 at landfall. But for the record books right now, it was a high-end Cat 4 as it came ashore yesterday afternoon. Uh, uh, and, you know, it it was hard hitting in, in many ways. We had those catastrophic winds uh, right within the eye wall. Uh, on top of that, those winds really acting as a plow, just shoving Gulf waters inland. And we see what happened at, at footage coming out of Fort Myers, uh, just devastating uh, effects at the pier and uh, also in, in the, the community as well, just buildings leveled from that storm surge. And then, you know, we talk about the flooding rainfall as well, over a foot of rain, a, a, a swath of, of a foot or more of rain fell anywhere from Fort Myers and Port Charlotte, that area, just south of the I-4 corridor, all the way up to Kissimmee, Orlando, Daytona Beach. So this thing just kept packing punches uh, throughout the day yesterday and as it moved inland uh, throughout the day today. I talked to um, former FEMA Administrator and Florida Emergency Management Director Craig Fugate yesterday afternoon, right about the time the storm was making landfall or maybe an hour or two after. And he mm -hmm. characterized Ian, you know, as one of the most destructive storms that's ever hit the state of Florida. You just mentioned that mm -hmm. Governor DeSantis kind of echoed that before. I mean, are there any other storms that you can compare this to in terms of what we're seeing as damage? Well, I mean, I think back to Hurricane Michael. Just a, just a few years ago and, and how that really um, wrought havoc in the panhandle. But I think with this storm, a big problem is the fact that it was a damaging major hurricane, borderline Cat 5, and the location that it made landfall. A highly populated, highly developed area, a, a good deal of a population living right along the coastline. Um, and I think that's going to really put this one in the record books in terms of, of costliest storm. And um, I, I haven't heard any official reports of, of fatalities, but word on the street is that um, those numbers are not good either. So unfortunately, this storm, for, for several reasons, is going to be in the top of the record books. I've lived uh, in Fort Myers since I was a kid, and you know we've had storms come through over the years, and they make predictions about storm surge levels. And it seems like Fort mm -hmm. Myers in southwest Florida has never really lived up to the predictions, but this time mm -hmm. uh, we certainly did. What was it about this storm? You know, it's its nature and characteristics that meant the storm surge was as bad as it turned out to be. Right. So, uh, it, you know, it, it depends on a couple of things. The first thing is the magnitude of the winds around the eye wall. And the second thing is your location relative to that eye wall. Um, so, of course, you know, areas that are perpendicular to the wind, uh, right in the direction of the wind flow, that's what's going to be, or those are the areas that will be most impacted by, uh, by the storm surge flooding. Also, the geography of the coastline. If you have, um, you know, winds that, that are helping to converge water farther inland, it, it, the shape of the coastline um, can actually exacerbate the, the influx of water. So, you know, before this storm did make landfall and, and before it really did approach the Lee Island coast, the, the cone was taking it in the mean track from the NHC was taking it into Tampa or, or just south of Tampa, closer to Sarasota. Um, or actually, no, excuse me, it was taking it a little bit farther north uh, toward Tampa, maybe even north of Tampa. And that would have put Tampa Bay in the excessive storm surge area, of course, because those winds directing, um, you know, water from the Gulf of Mexico up into the Tampa Bay and it's got nowhere to go. So it's going to flood. 
because the track was farther south, um, you know, we have those onshore winds then anywhere from Captiva and Sanibel southward toward Fort Myers Beach, uh, Naples, Bonita Springs. So, um, you know, the fact that those areas that I just listed, Fort Myers, Naples, um, they had onshore flow, and that's why we got the catastrophic storm surge flooding. Farther north, north of the storm, the winds were offshore, and we saw drainage out of the Tampa Bay. So it's all about where you are relative to the wind direction. That was Florida Public Radio Emergency Network meteorologist Megan Borowski speaking with me on this show on the evening of Thursday, September 29th, one day after Hurricane Ian made landfall near Sanibel Island, just about 20 miles from our station. We're listening back to some of the voices we brought to you on this show on the very first day of Hurricane Ian recovery. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll start off by hearing from WGCU's John Davis, whose own home was inundated with four feet of storm surge. I'm Mike Canary, and you're listening to Gulf Coast Life here on WGCU. Welcome back to the show. This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Today we're revisiting parts of the two live shows we produced on Thursday, September 29th, the day after Hurricane Ian made landfall here in southwest Florida. Power and internet were out for hundreds of thousands of people in our listening area, so we were doing what we could to provide firsthand information about what the region was facing after the powerful Category 4 storm swept through. The best way for us to accomplish that was by talking to our own team members to see what they'd seen and heard. We're going to continue now, starting with a conversation I had with WGCU's John Davis after he finally had a chance to leave the station and check out his own home, which is near Fort Myers Beach. All right, next up, we're joined here in studio by John Davis. He's WGCU's assistant news director and also a reporter and a longtime host here at WGCU. Seen a couple storms. John, good evening. Good evening, Mike. So uh, tell us about what you've seen today. Uh, well, uh, earlier this morning, I was going out to to actually kind of check on my own home in addition to, to try to do some reporting. And uh, I, I live in the uh, Iona-McGregor area. If you think about where if you're traveling on Summerlin Road and then you hit that overpass where if you go on the overpass, you're headed towards Sanibel. And then if you turn towards the west, you're headed towards Fort Myers Beach. I can see that overpass from my living room windows. Um, and I wasn't able to get closer than a couple blocks in my car to my home. So I was pretty worried at that point, uh, but parked the car on the side of a residential street, waded through waist-deep water, and got to the house. It was extremely difficult to open the door, and the moment I did, water just came pouring out. And uh, there is a, a clear line along all the interior walls about four feet up. It's a total loss on the inside. How much, uh, you know, how big, describe the, the area that was flooded and how many homes and businesses would have been in that same flood that affected your house? And I'm sorry about your house. Yeah, it's um, actually because I'm close to a, a Publix and a Walmart and both of those parking lots seemed clear. So I don't know if there was any kind of damage on the inside. I mean, certainly there was visible damage outside. Um, but the neighborhood is just a little more low lying. Um, um, and uh, it, it's a lot of uh, working class Hispanic families in that neighborhood. And, and even though we did have such extensive damage, oddly enough, it seemed like 
the property that we were on was one of the higher places in the neighborhood. So there were a whole bunch of people just hanging out literally right outside my living room windows, like between like where I would park my car and the driveway. Mm. And I, I tried to do talk to some of them and get some interviews, but I don't speak Spanish and they don't speak English. So we weren't able to communicate that well. Um, but it was clear to see that all of the homes around me uh, had not just flooded, but remain right now inundated with water. There's standing water in their homes. And this was the entire neighborhood. Did you try to head out further toward the beach at all? I know Fort Myers Beach, from what I understand, is, you know, you might call it ground zero for this storm. Or, you know, did you go anywhere else out in that part of town? Uh, I, I did not. But my, my, my neighbor, who is my best friend and, and who is actually camping out here with us now at WGCU, <laughs> uh, experienced a similar damage to, to her home. Um, and she actually rode out the storm at a resort hotel on Fort Myers Beach. So kind of had the surreal experience of kind of being able to look down from being in a high-rise hotel and just seeing ocean on all sides. And Fort Myers Beach, I mean, as many people know by this point, the loss is really, really devastating. Um, um, Times Square, it, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, a lot of the iconic places that have been there are just gone. And uh, I, I don't exactly know what the situation is now, but earlier today, um, they were not letting people drive over the Matanzas Pass Bridge onto the island. You could park your car and walk across the bridge, um, but they were only letting cars off the bridge. And so um, um, my friends who are here with us now actually got a ride off of the island in the back of a pickup truck um, with a guy who was who was taking a lot of people off the island to, to try to get their home. Uh, did they have a car out there? And if so, what happened to their car? Uh, they did have a car out there. The reason they needed a ride is because in the middle of uh, Ian's impacts on Fort Myers Beach, they watched the car float away. Hmm. Well, that really paints a picture. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts about what you saw today before we move on? Um, I, you know, I just kind of want to note that the voices that you've been hearing on this station throughout this coverage and that you're going to continue hearing as the recovery goes on. You know, we're not reporters from some other area who have parachuted in. We are going through this with you. We suffer with you. That's that's just kind of the point I would want to make is we are we're, we're just as much a part of this community as the people who's who are being impacted on that. Uh, I'm not saying that well, but we're all being impacted equally. We're all in it together. Yes, yes. All right, John Davis is uh, WGCU's assistant news director, also a reporter here at the station. John, thanks so much for sharing your story from today. Thanks, Mike. Okay, we're going to go next to Tara Calligan. Tara Calligan's a reporter and producer, among other things, here at WGCU. She's been spending the day out in the community talking to some people. Tara, good evening. Good evening. So uh, tell us what you've seen today. Uh, Well, I started my day leaving... Florida Gulf Coast University and went downtown Fort Myers. But what I want to start with is Sanibel. I actually drove as close as I could get to Sanibel, um, made it out to where you would eventually kind of start to get to that bridge, that long road before you get to the causeway. but you were turned around. So the sheriff's deputies were there. Uh, They were having people turn around for safety. In that area where people were turning around, though, there was an entire line of cars on the side of the road. I went around to some of those cars, talked to people, and they were there because that was the only place they'd been driving around for a lot of the day to find cell phone service. So I thought maybe it was people on the island or maybe they were waiting for loved ones. But no, that's where they actually got cell service. Um, I was basically right outside of the... um, the harbor there. The, thank you. Yeah, the the harbor. Um, people were being ferried from 
the Ferried Sandal. by boat. Correct. Um, so I actually spoke with, spoke with Edward uh, Zarek. He's a firefighter with the Sanibel Fire and Rescue. Um, so he told me that people are being transported from Sanibel and Captiva to the Port Sanibel Marina. There it was, Port Sanibel Marina. Uh, and we have him explaining what, what's going on right now with their efforts. Uh, right now we're just trying to get people evacuated off the island that stayed behind. Um, so we're bringing them in by boat, uh, getting them on in getting them here and then try to get them from here to somewhere they can contact somebody because we have no cell service. Um, so we're trying to get uh, ambulances and uh, buses to bus people from here to maybe a shelter. That's what we're trying to do now. I would just say if you're on the island and you need help, try to get a hold of somebody. Um, we're going to be out there looking for everybody, going through house to house. So we recommend getting off the island. You can't stay there forever. This is going to be a long process of getting uh, resources back on the island. And right now there's Unfortunately, there's no emergency services out there so that we can, but we're out there searching for them. Let's get them off the island and get them to safety. What was that like being around those people going through that sort of thing? And, you know, he's a first responder, but he's a person too. It's very surreal. Um, and you can see in his eyes that he, he wants to do something. He wants to do more. He was sitting there, you know, waiting, trying to organize people. Uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife were helping with boats, uh, even just residents, people that have boats and access to a boat that they can use. They're asking good Samaritans to step up and say, if you have a boat that operates and you are willing and able, please help us ferry people from Captiva, from Sanibel uh, to the Port Sanibel Marina so they could find somewhere to go. Uh a boat came. Uh, people were when I got there. People were coming back from Captiva. They had they had gotten a few people from Captiva. Uh, I spoke with a family. It was a daughter who was visiting from out of state to encourage her parents to evacuate Captiva, but they didn't. Um, they had a plan that hey, we will leave Wednesday really early in the morning because that would be perfect time. They thought it would work out in a certain way, but with how slow the storm was moving, they had no idea that it would actually last as long as it did. Um, they obviously didn't get to evacuate. Um, they had fire and rescue show up to their home and on a golf cart, bring them to a boat and uh, ferry them basically to the Port Sanibel Marina. Another woman I spoke with, um, she was all by herself in her home. No one around her at all. <laughs> she had fire rescue at her door. She was standing um, just in her lawn um, taken aback completely by what was around her, feeling so alone by herself. Um, there was where she lives. It's usually vacation homes uh, over there on Captiva, and she is a widow. Um, they gave her 15 minutes to gather her belongings. She grabbed a photo album that she put together with photos of her husband. She grabbed some of his writing that she said that she really enjoyed because he he was a writer. Um, some bags of clothes, but and, and she almost forgot her wedding rings, but she didn't. She remembered to grab her wedding rings. Um, and then they ferried her to the port Sanibel Marina, and she has no idea what she's going to do. She doesn't have another home. She doesn't have anyone in the area. She's completely by herself. And that story is unfortunately a story I heard a lot today. People getting off of those boats at the port marina, they didn't know what they were going to do. That's where their home is. They don't know when the next time they're going to see their home. They don't know the next time that they could go back to Sanibel. Um, it, it was it was very emotionally overwhelming for them. And then for me, right when they get off a boat, to ask them to share their experience with me, I, I probably that was the first time a lot of them got to recount their experience out loud to anyone uh, other than loved ones to let them know they were safe. Um, so it was very emotionally draining for everyone, for all of us, uh, this entire experience. 
Um, Edward Zarek, I also asked him about the Sanibel Causeway. So I have a, a soundbite of him as well explaining what he knew as of the time. Uh, so as of now, from what I know, uh, two portions of the causeway have been washed away. So it's completely inaccessible by any type of vehicle. Um, so right now it's just air aircraft, helicopters, uh, and boats getting people off. Um, who knows how long it's going to take to rebuild that. So we can't, we can't get ambulances out there, can't get police cars, can't get fire trucks out there. You know, um, after Hurricane Charlie, there used to be um, Periwinkle Drive out there used to be completely, you know, there was these Australian pines and it was like a tunnel that you were driving through. And then after Charlie, that all went away and suddenly Periwinkle Drive became different. Uh, did you get a, any sense from people as to, you know, how much of the flora has been washed away or blown away out there? It's interesting that you bring that up. Um, the, the woman I was talking to you about, actually with her with her parents, who was trying to get them to evacuate, she said that there's no wildlife anymore. That's what she told me. There's no wildlife anymore. She said that she didn't think she heard a bird, a bug, a sound of nature all day until she actually got to the Port Sanibel Marina. Um, and there were some pelicans there, and she she was noticing them because she hadn't heard any wildlife at all since the storm hit. Um, it's it's indescribable. Uh, I asked people to describe the island. They said it is catastrophic. Um, one girl I got to speak with, uh, she and her family, they were family, I think mother and her boyfriend, they were staying in a home. Uh, they had to get to the second floor. I mean, they were chest deep in water and they were getting to the second floor of, of a home. I can't, I don't even know how tall that, that is. She couldn't even, you know, try to give me a number, but she did tell me that the lighthouse is still there. Um, there had been a lot of reports that it was gone. But, yes, that's the first I've heard of somebody she, confirming the presence uh, of the Sanibel Lighthouse. I didn't get to see it. I didn't see any photographs of it, but she did tell me that it is still there and it is still standing. Um, but, it, I mean, these people I spoke with, they weren't just visitors. They're people who have been living there for 20, 18, 15, 30-plus years. Uh, I spoke with uh, someone, Noah Stewart, um, Edward Zarek, the firefighter I spoke with, he said people were ferrying back and forth. And Noah Stewart, he runs a boat tour company uh, with his family on Sanibel called the Adventures in Paradise. It's been open since 1986. He went to the marina because he wanted to take a boat to see his family that was on Sanibel because he hadn't heard from them. Uh, so here I actually have him explain what he was doing because he then wound up ferrying people all day. My brother and his kids and wife and my parents stayed on Sanibel, so I, you know you couldn't get contact. So I wanted to make sure they were okay. My dad's kind of old, and um, so I was able to get them and get them off. So they're they're leaving now, um, and then just anybody else who who wanted to leave, we took them, and then we took uh, the Sanibel Police Department, the chief, and all of them took them to the island. So they're out there now, um, and then we'll probably do the same thing tomorrow, and then probably the next day. I don't know. So. What are people saying to you as you're helping get them off? You know, you're helping neighbors, strangers, people that you don't you know, know. Honestly, uh, I think one of the common things is that most people are pretty shook up, like they've seen a ghost or something. He seemed like he might have been a little shook up, too. You know, it's, it's funny. He had such a good attitude, and I asked him that question. Um, he, 
by and large, his family was fine. Um, he lost a few of his boats um, that were there at the Port Marina in Sanibel. Um, he showed me his yellow boat. So this this is what got him noticed is when he was bringing his family back, the uh, police, they noticed his yellow boat. And then he got to f- even ferry them uh, back to the island because they hadn't been on the island at all. The police chief, they hadn't even been over there. Uh, so that was the first time they even hmm. made it over to the island. So they have no idea how many people are still on Sanibel at this point. Um, but they are going to continue around the clock, back and forth. And they're just, like he said, they're visiting homes. They're going home to home, place to place, trying to find people to encourage them and to take them off the island. Um, and you also spent some, some time downtown at the city of Fort Myers Yacht Basin. Yes, I also went downtown Fort Myers. Um, I've gr- I grew up here. Uh, I've never reported on a hurricane either. This is my first time. Uh, but as a community reporter, I speak to the people in Southwest Florida a lot. Um, I had not really gone to the Fort Myers Yacht Basin very much, but it's a whole community of people living on houseboats. I walk over to this area. I mean, Dock A, it is gone. It is completely gone. Boats underwater. The bridge um, over off to that side by the the yacht basin, um, there are boats that got pushed and they are basically stuck underneath that bridge area too. Uh, I spoke to a couple who they said someone was staying on their boat. They had to eventually swim to safety. I mean, it is completely destroyed. And they worry because there was some, some... company that they were going to privatize this yacht basin, the city was going to sell it. That, that has been reported a bit, especially I think back in more April time. Um, but they're worried now that with all this destruction and devastation that the city is going to want to sell it. And now they don't know what the future holds. So not only did they lose their homes, places that they live, they don't know what the city is going to do about this. If they're now just going to privatize it to someone else, which would completely change their community. Um, it's devastating to these people. Their homes sunk. Um, overall, the city of Fort Myers has the River District down there. Did you walk down the streets at all? You know, could oh, you, yes. Could you see, um, you know, based on the sides of the buildings, how, how high the water would have gotten throughout downtown? Uh, so I went over to, you know, like Seed and Bean. Uh, they had parts of Dock actually in front of... There were parts of correct. Dock in front of Seed mm-hmm. and Bean. That's 200 yards yes, from the river. correct. Um, it looked like at least water would have been knee-high, possibly, uh, with some of the water lines that I saw, uh, like Capone's downtown, you know, First Street, things like that. Um, Ford's uh, garage windows smashed, um, water, you know, got inside, things like that. So I spoke with a couple business owners down there. People are doing their best to clean up. Downtown House of Pizza was the only place open. They had a huge line. Well, they must have um, sandbagged or something. Something. Uh, but they had a huge line. It was the only place that was open. I actually tried to get in there to talk with someone, but they were so busy. They were the only restaurant open downtown. Um, you going to go back out tomorrow or are you going to be around the station? I'm going to be filing a bunch of stories. I'm going to be writing and filing stories, um, but I would love to hear from people. I also run our social media. So, again, if you are on uh, and able to share your experience, your stories, I'd love to talk to you. You can find us on Facebook at WGCU Public Media, Twitter, Instagram at WGCU. Um, we would love to hear from you. All right. Well, thank you, Tara, for sharing what you went through today and what you've seen. And I know and, and people do get in touch with us and with Tara. We would love to share your stories. We would love to understand what you're going through. So thank you, Tara. Thank you. If you're just tuning in today, we're doing a bit of time travel to the very first day after Hurricane Ian made landfall. We were all hands on deck at the station, and everyone was doing their best to provide firsthand accounts of what people across the region were experiencing. The last voice we're going to hear from today is one of our part-time reporters who started here as an intern and now works at Wink News. Their studios near downtown Fort Myers were flooded by Ian, and their entire team was forced to evacuate the evening of the storm, including her. Let's hear that conversation now. 
Uh, we're going to end this evening's show with a conversation WGCU executive producer for content Pam James had with Sam Romero earlier today. Sam's a reporter for WGCU as well as a video editor at Wink News. She was at Wink during the storm yesterday and was there when the building located on Palm Beach Boulevard just a block from the Caloosahatchee River, about a mile or less from where Tara was just describing. It flooded there at Wink. They lost electricity and then ultimately needed to be rescued. WGCU's Pam James did catch up with Sam to hear her story. Tuesday, I was working. It was like a normal day. We were going to do continuous coverage, which was going to be 12 hours on, 12 hours off. We have two floors. So the first floor was all of our studio, our computers, our, our work um, sites. And then upstairs were just offices. Um, and in my shift, my second shift is when everything started to go south. And around 6-ish p.m. is when all of the flooding started happening. And we had put some barriers outside of the doors to prevent any of the flooding from coming in, but the hurricane was just way too strong. Yeah. So when you say flooding, what does it mean? Like, so you started having like water started seeping through or what did it feel like, look like? Yeah, was- that's what it was. It was murky water seeping through the, the, the doors, under the doors, um, through the roof. It was leaking everywhere. It was just leaking everywhere. And it wasn't just normal water. It was dark, murky water from Billy's Creek and the Gulf. So it was disgusting. And once that started happening, shortly after the power went out, we had a couple generators, but did the best that we could. And then after that, we went upstairs. We were stuck upstairs for hours without power, without light. None of the toilets flushed. We had like about 100 people upstairs crowded. It was, it was crazy. And then about 12, there was a fire from our server behind the audio board. So um, basically like fire rescue came. Um, and started escorting us out uh, about one in the morning, two in the morning. And we, there were SWAT cars outside. There was police and fire rescue, and everyone had to walk through the murky water downstairs. You evacuated via SWAT truck. Mm-hmm. What was that like? Yeah. I was so in shock. I had just woken up. I was so disoriented. And to be sat in a SWAT truck, crowded with a bunch of other people, you know, it, it, was, oh, it was just beyond what I could comprehend. I thought it was a fever dream. So we just sat there not knowing what was happening for hours. And where then we where were did they take Dunbar. you? Dunbar High School. It's the refugee center that's in Lee County, I believe. So we were taken there about two in the morning, three in the morning, around there. And we were there for about eight hours. What was the refugee center like? I mean, how many people were there? And did you talk to anybody, happen to talk to anybody there? So when we got there, there weren't that many people. We were one of the first people, I think. There were some people downstairs, which were about 40. It was sectioned off between single women, women with families and single men. It was just split off. Um, They put us in the second floor. So there weren't that many people yet, but the environment looked like it was going to be a lot more. But you could see everyone was scared for their families and trying to see, trying to get in contact with everybody. I didn't have contact with my family for hours, for hours. And I was devastated yesterday because imagine being stuck in a news station where you can't be in contact with your family. There's no cell service. There's no power. My mom couldn't get in contact with me. And I was cutting video. I That's my job. I was cutting video for air and there were videos of people that were on top of their roofs or houses that were you know drifting by the canals so I didn't know if my family was in the same situation I was super super scared um and my mom was the same uh she was also scared 
that I wasn't okay. So, yeah, basically that's how it was. And luckily by a neighbor, she has Verizon. She she called me, she called my mom, and through her I got in contact hours later. And it was just, it, it was like tears coming out of my eyes while I was talking to my mom. That was the moment where I was like, oh, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. As long as I know that my family's okay, and it's okay. That was our executive producer for content, Pam James, talking with Sam Romero. She's an editor at Wink News and a part-time reporter for us here at WGCU. That conversation wrapped up the second airing of this show on Thursday, September 29th, the very first day of what will certainly be a very long recovery from Hurricane Ian for so many people. We continue to do our best to connect you with the people who were impacted by Ian and those working to help them. Stay tuned to this show and WGCU. GCU in the weeks and months and to some degree likely years ahead as Southwest Florida continues to rebuild. Our show today was produced by yours truly. The Gulf Coast Life Directors are Richard Chinqui and Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida. Thank you.